The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to episode four of John Richardson and the Future Notes, the future of pubs. I'm John Richardson and I'm joined by the Future Notes, who are Mr. Edgar Gillespie. Good evening. And Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. How has your week been? Do you have any anecdotes from the week? This is how I should introduce it. Mark and Ed, do you have an anecdote from the last week of your life or shall we crack on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a good week. Had a nice chat with, you know, some military forces about cooperation on climate change. and. Uh, um, battle to get my youngest one to love me. <laughs> That's a work in progress. What's the hardest thing to? Uh, yeah, what's the hardest thing to influence? The mind of a child or the military? It's definitely the mind of a child who wakes up and just goes, "I want mummy now. I want mummy now." You'd be worried if the general was saying that, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's that's what all the army is, though. Basically, isn't it? You could defuse all wars by saying, "Do you guys just need a cuddle?" What's yeah. going on here? What's going on, guys? Come on. Um, Ed, how have you been? I'm good. I think the, the kind of the biggest thing I've achieved this week is by putting up the Christmas tree for the first time with my daughter, which was fun. Um, thank you for your individual feedback, which we uh, read and compute, uh, everyone, if we don't mention them. Uh, Sarah said, uh, what an excellent episode on sex. Refreshing to have a show hosted by three men, openly acknowledging the effect the patriarchy has had on not just the cultural construction of sex, but on society as a whole. And uh, I read that because, again, that's not something that happened by accident, is it? That's not, you know, we were very careful to come across as three good guys because, actually, we're absolute pieces of shit. So thank you for recognising the work we did to come across as decent people people this just to remind me actually i was talking about this today because a friend of mine listened to the sex episode and we got into talking about sex and stuff and, and i said that when i was at college I, you know me being a geek I, I kind of read a whole bunch of books on on feminism and feminist theory so i thought i got to sort of bone up on this stuff you know because the women i'm meeting at uni are far smarter than i am and, and I'm, I'm i've come from a, a place which probably isn't as educated about these things as it might be so i read all these books but then i soon realized that reading uh you know a feminist tome or classic uh, out in the open as I used to meant I got more admiring glances from women and I got very conflicted about that because I thought well you know I don't actually have to read this I just have to hang around girls looking like I'm reading it <laughs> and I thought well this makes me part of the problem. Oh I did have I did have a nice comment actually because I did a talk in Malaysia this morning obviously um, virtually uh, at 7am uh, for the Institute of Directors out there and, and someone said afterwards you enable the possibility of optimism in a sombre world 
which uh, I think I might take as my new tagline. Oh, lovely. Sounds like a great prog album. Sounds like another book of poetry. Sounds like Ed's about to go three, two up in the book stakes. Doesn't count. They're not proper books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did mention the podcast on the last leg. We had a good old chat about it on Five Live. So if you're here from Five Live, thank you and welcome. You have a tremendous back catalogue to get to know. And thank you to Scott, who during the interview said, and what I'm finding is trying to get the podcast into the various interviews i've done this week is i think people are scared to ask me about it because it seems heavy and intense our podcast and if there's one thing i'm trying to stress to people it's that it's a funny and optimistic podcast and scott said on five live today he listens to the podcast and he feels better about the future after every one and i think gentlemen that is down to you two certainly not me um but that's exactly what we want people to feel isn't it that's a beautiful thing that we want people to feel. Yeah, I mean, if you can take a five live presenter and make them feel happy, I think you've done something quite extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> One of our emails this week comes from Neil, how do I pronounce his surname? Deville? Deville. 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 Neil Deville. Mm. He says, hi, guys. Just catching up on the podcast. Um, the latest episode reminded me of the first time that Mark saw pornography, which was at my house in Christmas. Christmas? What is wrong with you, man? At Christmas 1988. Upon entering the room and witnessing what was happening, Mark uttered the phrase, that can't be real. If that was real, it would be illegal. What's all that about, mate? That is true. I do remember that. So Neil was a very good friend of mine at school. Nice to hear. I hope so. I hope you're not just watching <laughs> pornography with any sod. <laughs> But the other thing uh, that he used to do as a as a seventeen year old was brew his own wine, make his own wine, which was absolutely lethal. So I remember Neil with a great deal. Well, I hardly remember Neil with a great deal of fondness. <laughs> if any of our listeners have dirt on Mark and Ed, uh, the the way you can get in touch will be at the end of the show. We have a Twitter feed. We have our own email address. Please send me some absolutely incriminating filth on these two because. <laughs> I've never worked with any two people I feel so inferior to. So if you can please let me get a leg up, even if it's on the 17-year-old Mark and his filthy Christmas films, um, then I will absolutely take it. So we're here this week to discuss the future of pubs and uh, drinking in general. A A topic, I mean... As a comic with friends, and I'm not bemoaning my own position, I'm a very lucky gentleman. I've had more work this year than I deserve in a full career, to be honest. But a lot of my colleagues in the industry, and that goes for people who work in theatres and clubs, have not worked since the first lockdown began. Uh, And that's very frustrating, and it's devastating for people's lives. And I don't see the comedy industry or the theatre industry representing the papers nearly so much as I do pubs, which is, is pretty much how we measure the tiers of lockdown. How... Am I able to get to the pub? Who can I sit with? What constitutes a meal? It's a dialogue that absolutely dominates our view of a global crisis. So why is it that pubs are so important to us, do you think? Well, it helps us understand the different COVID tiers for a start, John. So basically, tier one is pints. Tier two is pints plus a substantial meal. And tier three is no pints. Oh, God. I speak as a man in tier three. <laughs> I, th- I think... The important point is that that, uh, that pubs are places where we gather and mix in in a way that's not work and whatever. And actually, we'll talk about this later. That the social cohesion and the role of of the pub as a kind of a secular place to to gather that's actually very important to people. And that's why the the fucking of them, which we will come on to, is is actually was was going on before COVID has been accelerated by COVID and is it is deeply worrying. And we need to save save our pubs, which is what we'll get to at the end of the podcast. Of course, is how we save them. 
Yeah, my hometown of Norwich used to have a pub for every day of the year, famously. So uh, 365 pubs for a city of about 130,000 people. So about one pub for every 350 people. And it also means, I mean, gobshites that we are, we are clearly part of the problem as we pretentiously discuss why pubs are in demise in this country. Two of us have set up rival pubs in our own houses. So um, I'll, I'll take some of the blame for the uh, the D&B. But you make a very valid point, which is one of the reasons we're talking about pubs and would have been regardless of COVID is the decline has been clear in this country. And I think any even part-time drinker is aware of the demise of both the number and the quality of pubs in this country over the last few years. Yeah, in 1990, there was 111 pubs per 100,000 people. And by 2017, there were 73 pubs per 100,000 people. So that's like over a 25% decline in, in just that period as well. And indeed, as we'll get on to, the quality of those pubs. Let's talk briefly about the importance of pubs because I feel we need to justify the existence of this episode. We are three people who very much enjoy pubs, but that's not solely why this episode exists. Talk about what you think a pub does in terms of its role for its community and for the individuals and for society as a whole. So I think, you know, at their best, pubs are these extraordinary, mysterious and wonderful places of convening. And I was kind of very spoilt as a teenager, embarking on my first experiments in underage drinking in the mid-80s, because one of the first pubs I ever drank in was a fairly legendary pub called the Locks Inn in Gelderston, uh, which is just on the Norfolk-Suffolk border in the Waveney Valley. And it's an old lock keeper's cottage. And it had been a pub for about 300 years, had no mains electricity, was about a mile down uh, a dirt track in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and it was all lit by candlelight with an open fire. And every night when you went down there, it was just gravity beers. So they'd have like a couple of ales and a barrel of rough Suffolk cider uh, behind the bar. And you always got musicians that would rock up from the local town uh, and play live music every night. And they'd have a big box of percussion instruments uh, that they'd pull out from behind the bar and everyone would join in. And I thought that's what all pubs were like. And so I had this sort of like Tolkien-esque first experience of pub culture. And I thought it was incredible. And little did I know that... Um, I was kind of already drinking in one of the best pubs in the world. But what was extraordinary about that place is that people would walk for miles just to go out for a beer, for the conviviality, for the atmosphere, for the feeling of of connection, um, both to uh, the history of the building and the place and the fact that you were indulging in some way in something timeless and rather wonderful, but also because it had good beer. But also, I think pubs are they're great. They're great serendipity engines, and a pub at its best, I think, is a great leveler because you can get everybody in there, and actually, you're all meeting in this this place which is safe and you know doesn't really deal with status and it's a great place to to connect with your community and when it at its best, and they should be community pubs, and 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 uh, you know they play as important a role. I think uh, in society went at their best as, as the church used to, as this place where we meet, get together. And, and as we all know, and we've quoted a lot on this podcast, that, that the biggest indicator of whether you live a long and happy life is actually how socialised you are, particularly in your local community. And therefore, a, a, great, a great pub is not just a place to you know, have a few drinks. It it's can be the heartbeat of a community. And that's why when they're failing, it's, uh, it's so traumatic. So we are, if you're used to the regular format of the show, you'll know we talk about why things are so bad, uh, how they got that bad, and then how we go about changing the situation. What we have today for you is two interviews through which we will have that dialogue with with two expert guests. So very shortly, Mark and Ed, without me, 
uh, will take a trip to uh, a brewery brewing a beer. I'm talking about beer and its importance and um, a, a beer that is, is part of a, a new way of thinking about beer and drinking. But first, uh, we're going to be joined by a, a gentleman called Mark Dodds, who um, has has set up, a, is trying to instigate a movement to combat some of the problems with pubs. And Ed, I think you're best place to talk to us about Mark Dodds and how you know him. So Mark is the founder of the People's Pub Partnership. I met uh, Mr. Mark Dodds uh, about almost 20 years ago now uh, when I was working in Brixton uh, running my agency and we got an email popped into our inbox uh, which came from our local pub, which is always a, a nice thing to happen. Uh, and Mark was saying, you guys are working on this environmental stuff. Why don't you come down and have a drink and let's talk? Uh, and Mark was a genuine pioneer trying to set up the first sort of zero carbon, zero impact public house in the UK uh, in the early noughties. And we have basically been buddies ever since. But Mark has been a very successful publican, runs some of the best pubs that I've ever been to in my life. Uh, and for the last 10 years has been a kind of activist campaigner on trying to save pubs and save them in the smartest, cleverest and most sustainable way possible. So uh, yes, what Mark doesn't know about what's important and valuable and brilliant about pubs ain't worth knowing. You know, Mark used to run uh, a pub in Camberwell called The Sun and Doves, uh, which was one of my favourite pubs uh, uh, for the first 10 years I was living in London. I don't remember being in that pub several times. (laughs) (laughs) We will turn to Mark shortly to talk about The Sun and Doves. But since we're talking about pubs, tell me, Ed, when you say The Sun and Doves is one of your favourite pubs, Let's get to the heart of what you mean about a pub. What is it that you look... Do you remember a specific beer? Do you remember the decor? Or is it a, an unquantifiable thing that made that pub special to you? There was something magical about the Sun and Doves because it was a kind of... In the cliche, it was a proper community pub. You know, you got everyone from all walks of life in there. It had a fantastic atmosphere and ambience, you know, brilliant decor, fantastic layout, uh, an incredible garden full of art uh, and wonderful plants. You know, everything about it. When you walked in, you went, ah, this is this is lovely. Um, and and that all came from lots of deep thought, creativity and collaboration because Mark drew on all the expertise and experience and, and insights and magic that was surrounding um, him in the Campwell area. So artists, poets, musicians, filmmakers, uh, you name it, everyone gravitated into there. Um, and the garden in the summer was was like a festival. None of that stuff happens by accident, does it? And so the, the, I think if we're going to get into, ha- you know, why are we so fucked or how are we fucked? My question is that pub kind of existed in my imagination a lot I, I remember going to pubs like that quite a lot but there seem to be far fewer of them these days uh, and uh, how, what what's going on what's going on mark where where have they gone they've all been um, strangled by the dead hand of capitalism <laughs> <laughs> of every guest we've ever had that as an opening line that's very big that is very big that's on message that welcome to the podcast unfortunately it's true though this is a fucking terrible thing about about pub, fuck me, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't not swear. Pubs are the most secular cultural um, institution we have in Britain. That's two um, big sentences. Is every sentence out of your mouth going to be this big? Do you know what he is? You know who he is? He's the bloke you wish you'd bump into into a, in a pub, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> straight away. It's like, fucking hell, this guy is fantastic. I need you to speak to my wife about when I say I need to go to the pub. <laughs> And she says, you don't need to, you want to. I need to put her straight onto you. You need to yeah. rephrase it, John. You need to say, I, I, darling, I'm just popping down to the most important secular cultural <laughs> yeah. institution that Britain has. 
<laughs> why has that been allowed to happen? Even even having said all this, if they're that important and we like them as consumers, why have they got worse and then closed? Well, okay, it's ironic and it's counterintuitive, but the only time government has really intervened fully in the pub sector was in 1989 when the Thatcher government brought in the beer orders, which was to break up the, the monopoly of big brewers who had big regional monopolies around the country, Bass, Scottish Newcastle, Tetley's, whatever, because the Conservative realised, the Conservatives realised that people couldn't get a wide choice of beers in, in our pubs because we would only, if you were in a Tetley area, you got Tetley, with Scottish Newcastle area, you got Tetley, if you in Norfolk, you got Green King stuff like that is that the psychosis of like consumer choice though because you know i remember writing an article once about how you know locally brewed ale was probably the most sustainable thing you could drink just because it was it was made locally provided locally and drunk locally so you know there is something sort of insane about taking perfectly good beer and then carting it halfway across the country just so someone else can have a sip of it yeah it gets even worse than that access to market is one thing but you find that small brewers don't get access to market now. The, the Thatcher government broke up the, the monopoly of six, I think it was six large brewers, forced them to reduce the size of their pub estates. And the resulting turmoil in the pub sector ended up with loads of private equity uh, money coming in and buying thousands of pubs. And then those pubs already had publicans in them because they were, they were trading pubs. And those pubs were converted into tied leases. So the ownership of the bricks and mortar changed. But the big companies that owned the bricks and mortar ceased to be brewers and they became property owners who then had loads and loads of property that were selling beer. And then those property owners called pub companies could go to all of the previous brewers who were the previous monopoly holders and say, right, we want a diverse market in our pubs. So give us your lowest prices or else we'll kick you off a price list. And since 1989, the pub sector has been largely run like that, where there are these notional price lists of six large pub companies who are called pub owning companies now, where they've got a huge range of beers on their price lists, which they offer to their tenants at twice the normal price that the tenants would be able to buy those beers from if they were free of tie. And in, in practice, they're profiteering by selling third party products to their tenants that they're, they're obliged to buy their beers from them. So the beer orders broke up one monopoly of a bunch of fat, lazy brewers who made huge amounts of money out of selling beer out of pubs in vast quantities and then gave the right to exploit people to property-owning companies who had no brewing interest. And since then, there's been, essentially, it's a scam. The the majority of the pub sector has been run by pub-owning companies that are owned by largely offshore-based private equity interests, and it is disaster capitalism. Um, in microcosm. I think you can feel that the thing you're saying, and, and going back to what we asked Ed about earlier, the, the unquantifiable thing that makes a good pub a good pub, you can feel that. When you walk into a pub, you can even tell by the number of menus and the, the amount of like leafliture that is on a table in the little plastic holders, the laminated cocktail list, instantly says nobody in this building cares about this as a pub. No, you're absolutely right, John. But when you walk into a decent pub, you just know because it's every, everything's there. It's a sense of place. The sense of place emanates from the moment you walk in. And when it doesn't, like, in, like I don't want to single Weatherspoons out for being a good example, but it is a good example because so many people know it because they're all across the country. Mm. When you walk into Weatherspoons, so, and I think some Weatherspoons are actually very good pubs, 
they have all, all the signatures that you just mentioned then. Mark, I think there's something here to be gleaned from your personal experience, though, isn't there? Because, you know, that, that explanation you just gave of, you know, the exploitation that went on. I mean, from what I recall from conversations with you about the kind of the fate of the Sun and Doves, I mean, you actually ended up going sort of into direct confrontation, didn't you, with your with your tied owner and with the brewery because of the exploitation you felt. And from from my understanding, it was essentially the fact that they decided you were allowed to make a certain amount of money as a publican. And no matter how successful you made the pub and how much more profitable you made it, they just upped your rent in order to squeeze your margin. Yeah, that's it, exactly. So the model, the model is I took on a totally fucked rundown pub that no one would i mean no one drank in i signed a, le- a tied lease on the pub and it, i mean i i'm not exaggerating we would be there on a friday night in the middle of winter and it was boiling hot in the place and we were the only people in all night long the place was losing money hand over fist and when i took it on i spent 60 grand on it and uh, turned it into a fifteen thousand quid a week turnover pub instantly this is back in 1995. my pub company was really surprised that this pub that they'd let to this guy in southeast london within a few weeks became Southeast London's busiest, highest volume pub. And um, maybe six months after we opened, then my area manager came in, literally rubbing his hands, uh, looking forward to the next rent review, it's gonna be six figures. And um, I was paying 32,000 quid at the time. And I was thinking, fucking six figures, what are you on about? That's what they do to everybody. If a publican does well, they try to take the profit from that success away by saying that the pub is doing very well and therefore they should benefit by increasing the rent dramatically. So I want to ask about that because I mean the stats are out aren't they we here there's there's pieces on the news a lot about closures of pubs and to bring it into the to the modern day if you are running a pub now say as a freeholder you own that building is a pub still inherently a profitable thing if you're running a good pub and people are coming in could you get this feeling now that People always say to me the same about food. You, you can't go into food to make money. You're just not going to. The overhead's too big. You've got to pay this certain thing. Is a pub something now that you would say, this business model is broken because of these third-party owners? So if you love pubs and you want to buy a pub, do it as a hobby and make a good pub. Or are you still saying that model that existed then at the Sudden Doves is still the same, that if you love a pub and you make it a good pub and you take the money that you earn from it, it's a really profitable thing to run. The latter. If you're running a really busy pub and it's a tied pub and you have to pay rent and buy beer from your freeholder, you're going to be struggling to make a profit out of it no matter how busy you are. Reasonably enough, if you're a, a dedicated pub committee, you're going to say, right, I want I want my cut of that. And that's what they do. They take their cut of it. And if the tenant's not rapier sharp in their business acumen, it's going to fuck the business up completely because... Uh, the margins are much smaller with a tide pub than it would be with a free of tide pub. Now, let's put that all to one side. If you take a pub that's a moribund, knackered, run-down boozer that's chronically starved of investment, that the conventional market, which is dominated by the pub company, says is no longer economically viable, therefore it's suitable for alternative use and it can be sold to be, you know, the free could be sold to be turned into something else, which is what goes on wholesale across the country. If you take that pub and turn it into a really brilliant pub the way I did with the Sun and Doves, it will do really well again. If you've got the capital, you can buy a rundown shut pub and you know what you're doing, you can make it a really, really busy, successful business. So very quickly then on the numbers then, uh, as a percentage of the pubs in the country, how many of these are still in that deal that you were in of a tide owned by this third party? How many are still brewery run and how many are free of all these ties? There's roughly 47,000 pubs. Roughly 20,000 of them are owned by non-brewing pub companies under this wow. tied lease arrangement. 
and then roughly 20,000 of the others are owned by a whole mixture of breweries still running their own pubs. That would include people like Weatherspoons, who are not a brewer, but they're a managed pub company. They've got 900 pubs. There's a whole bunch of organizations like that. There's loads of these people all adding up to, there might be 50 pubs here, 20 pubs there, 100 pubs here. They all add up to 20,000. Then there's roughly, I think, about 7,000 that we culturally would consider to be the uh, archetypal pub of your, which when you walk in, it just feels brilliant. And that's what we tend to think culture in the world loves the British pub. They're in the minority. They're few and far between. And when we talk about the closures, when we see the numbers of closures a week, are they are they across all three of those types, or are those are those seven thousand slightly more insulated? It's very difficult to speak with any authority about this because the figures are all controlled, understandably, by big business. The pub companies together don't want everyone in Britain to know that the reason the booze then their street is a rundown shithole is because they charge too much rent and charge the tenants double the, for the beer that they would be paying if they were free of tie. They want us to think that those pubs are crap because the tenants don't know what the hell they're doing. The people running the pubs don't know what they're doing. That's what they want. So that when those pubs fail, finally, no one's going to rent them anymore. They can sell them off and say, well, look, the pubs the pubs been failing for 20 years. We've moved on culturally. We do home entertainment. We drink booze from the supermarket. We sit on a Friday night watching stuff on television with booze we bought at the supermarket. And for our friendship, we use social media. It's preposterous. People don't do that, by and large. They don't go to pubs because they run down shitholes. So the thing that strikes me, like listening to you, is that the, 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 pub, the whole pub situation has become like a, a microcosm of the, a lot of the problems in society in that a pub used to be an essential part of the local economy, like spiritually, socially, and also economically, that the money changed hands in that pub stayed in the local community and was spent elsewhere. And what seems to have happened is that the, the version of, you know, commerce and economics that we now have says, well, that's an asset. Somebody else can come in and own it, we'll invest in it, but, but the money flows out. And therefore, as the money flows out, also the spirit and the soul and the socialness seems to flow out of the local community. And so the whole models is kind of like it's forgotten, essentially, what pubs are, which are pubs are inherently local. And therefore, surely they must be local businesses not businesses that are owned by some distant shareholder that's that's a really good way of talking about it of course there are different models of pub ownership as we touched on before but the way the pub companies report their performance their financial performance is to aggregate i don't know whether this is the right word aggregate all the pubs in their estate into one and then tell their shareholders and the people in the year-end report how much money per pub they're making and the way it's presented kind of suggests that they're doing really well now each individual pub might be just breaking even and they might be on their ass and they can't afford to inf- invest any money in the continuation of the business. You know, the publicans that are running the pub paying the rent, buying the beer, but it looks from a distance like it's doing well, but it's not, it's on, it's fucked. It's not, it's not a viable business. And then the irony is eventually the pub company say, well, this, this business has proven itself to be non-viable and the market regards their narrative, which is basically annual reports as the Bible, if you like, of what's going on in the pub sector, when really that's not the, that's not the true picture at all. The true picture is what happens when you go into the pub. And when you see those mm. pubs are run, most of those pubs are run down places with bartenders who've got 100,000 mile stairs because they're waiting for the bailiffs to walk in. You know, it's, it's true. It's what it is. It's just tragic. So this comes back to this really interesting point that, that we've got to this level now where 
where everything is extracted by somebody else. And what I love about what you're doing is this idea of like, you know, the argument of cuts is like, you know, we promote entrepreneurship, we reward risk takers, whatever, uh, we create more wealth and it's shared around. But that simply doesn't work with a local economy. It's like the local economy is all based around this, this pub is about us. It's about where we are. We don't give a shit about shareholders. We only give a shit about Jeff at the end of the road, who's a little bit vulnerable. And we give a we, we give a shit about Julie, who's just in her A-levels, and we want to help her, you know, get to university or whatever. That And that local economy has been almost devalued by this this idea of this, you know, the, the, the entrepreneur or the or the billionaire or the investor. And, and and what I love about pubs and what we're all missing about it is actually a microcosm of that thing we're missing in society, which is why are we not investing in ourselves anymore? And that's what the pub used to be. I, I, I totally agree. Pubs should be part of the commons. When, when they're owned by these extractive organisations that are just there to profiteer, they, uh, they lose that. In effect, the tied pub lease is a contract to become an indentured slave, an indentured labourer. I mean, I, th- I think for me, you know, what, what the essence of what this comes down to is that, you know, pubs are about people, um, as Mark was sort of alluding to. The essence of it is public house. And, you know, and a great pub is, it's it's therapy, it's education, it's counselling, it's dancing, it's laughter, it's singing. You know, it's it's all of those diverse different elements which you don't have as you say, when you've got the kind of dead hand of cold capitalism wrapped around its throat. Uh, because, you know, it needs to be a place where risks are taken and silliness happens. And, you know, that's why we used to have lock-ins in the first place, wasn't it? To do the things that you couldn't necessarily do when the pub was officially open. So, Mark, I've got a question for you. Having had all that experience of running these kind of secular spaces where great things happen and having also battled the nightmare of, you know, as you call it, the dead hand of capitalism, you know, how do we unfuck ourselves? How are you unfucking the world of pubs? And what could we learn from that, you know, as a wider society? Like, how might we run our governments? How might we run our societies? How might we, you know, learn from your experience? What What's the best way to run a pub? Because it seems to me, in a way, that the best way to run a pub and a local pub is possibly the best way to run the world, in a way. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about that. No, I, I, well, thank you very much. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> in the real world, we've got an existential crisis with the climate crisis, and then we've got an ex- existential crisis with pubs. They're both things which we, as individuals, feel powerless to do anything about. We all know there's something wrong. We wish we could change something about it. Now, if you put the two together and make carbon zero pubs, and you make those pubs owned by the people who live near the pub or by the people in general, be, make, literally make them part of the commons, raise a load of money, buy the pubs, and then set up a pub company that is carbon zero, that's working towards sustainable closed loop supply chains. If you're creating a market for closed loop stuff and sustainable supply chains, then they will emerge, right? And, and I'm not being fanciful about this. It just needs, needs a bit of capital. I've got to say I'm very inspired by the idea of the way you run a pub being a model of how we run society. And I'm definitely going to use that as an excuse with Lucy to tell her that I'm not just going to the pub to get drunk. I'm researching how together we build a better future for our planet. Um, But leading me on to COVID, surely, I mean, COVID has shown this is a disaster looming even for the good pubs that are left. COVID is killing pubs, finally, right? 20,000 pubs are on, the, are on their asses anyway because of the beer tie, largely. Then within all of that, COVID comes along. Most of the pub companies have continued to ask for rent. 
and charge rent during the during the close down period. These pubs have closed. They've been stacking up debt. They've been the the, the pub companies are are holding the rent off until some point in the future. At some point in the future, that's just a debt. Those pubs now they're fucked. They're gone. I mean, but there's a huge opportunity at the same time. Now, while all that's happening, there are vulture capitalists out there knowing this is going on and they're looking to wait for one of these or more of these pub companies to fail and to buy up loads of property that is proven to be no longer economically viable and to convert to alternative use down the line. Where would you uh, drive people? Everyone listening to this podcast now and listening to you, where would you drive people to be involved in this change you're talking about? No, I would say uh, People's Pub Partnership. Google that. There's loads of information about it. And at the moment, we're working on putting a crowdfunder together to raise capital, a little about 30,000 quid to finish the business plan. And then we're looking at raising probably a million quid on a national level to buy one pub to implement all the supply chain stuff, do the carbon zero stuff. And I've got 60 people in a Facebook group called People's Pub Partnership who've got various, they're like a 360 degrees understanding of the supply. There are supply chain experts, people like Ed, the, the people who really, when I say people like Ed, I mean exceptional people who know a lot about pubs and why they need to be treated specially who are all interested in this idea and they're all ready to go they're like they're like sleepers waiting to take over the world buying pubs and bringing them into common ownership under a social enterprise structure where um, suppliers workers and customers are all bound together in sustaining the future of the pub as a, as, a, as an exemplar for the way the world can be working within planetary boundaries well, I think this brings us back to the beginning, which is you said, you know, you know, when you walk into a decent pub, there's something intangible about it. And what is intangible about it is that sense of community and diversity, that everybody here is perhaps quite different, but we all share this place. And this is this is a safe place for us to chat, talk about politics or whatever. So I, what you're what you're saying to me is you're kind of reimagining that, but for a new future, which is a uh, a more egalitarian, more local, more green future. And and I think I often talk in my work about the participation virus, which is what will people do anyway that will result in good things out the back end? Yeah. And if you can create a pub where by the mere fact of going into it, you're making a more sustainable, equitable, just future, then that's got to be the win-win because you can get pissed whilst absolutely. making the world a better no, place. Absolutely. And I have to say, though, having said that, if that does become the norm, I have great fears for my friend John Richardson. Because if you could tell him drinking makes the world better, then we may we may not see many more tours from him. That's my worry. I've been able to tell you for years that drinking makes my world better. So, <laughs> it's all down to how altruistic I am. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, thank you. So there we go. That's a massive thank you to to Mark Dodds for his time and his insight and uh, a fascinating interview. Yeah, I tell you what I found particularly fascinating about it was that I've never heard the three of us be quite so serious. I mean, there were more laughs <laughs> in the climate change episode than there are than when it comes to you know the, the decline of pubs. I mean, this is something that we are not prepared to joke about. We are we're deadly serious. You know, biodiversity. Yeah, we can have a few gags about that. You know, cancer. Yeah, all that for a, for a man who's got a pub in his back garden, John. I think it's fascinating <laughs> that you, you 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 couldn't even bring yourself to make a joke. It was it was just too serious for you. 
No, I was I was at, at points. Do you know what I was thinking through most of it is just just tell me what pub to buy to fix all this, and then you run it. I just. It's it's my weakness in this podcast in general that I want our guests and I want you two to be able to tell me, if you just do this, everything will be all right again. And all I wanted was for Mark to say, do you know there's a little booze around here, it's only five grand, and between us we can sort it right out. And then I'd be like, right, I'm quitting comedy, I'm leaving my family. I'll pick up my little knapsack and I'll be hitchhiking my way down the A646. But it turns out, as usual, it's a tad more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, t- but for some people say you've quit comedy quite a long time ago there, John. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Oh, I've missed that. Oh, it's been such a bleak year that I think people are so vulnerable that, that some amount of bullying has gone out of our sort of discourse. And, um, you know, st- I only know I'm around people I can trust when they feel comfortable absolutely abusing me. And it turns out there's a lot of people I can trust. <laughs> you know, I, I look back at some of the guys I went to school with and I thought, Do you know what, they were better friends than I gave them credit for. You know, some of those guys who've driven past me in cars and shouted out, I think what they were really saying is, I understand you on a deep level, John, and I feel comfortable saying this to you because I respect you. <laughs> so when we buy our pub, which we will, the the Future Noughts Arms, um, what will we serve in the pub now to facilitate that and to have a conversation about the change in the drinks themselves and how that can influence the industry and our culture? And there's no, there's no easier way I can say this. You two pricks went to a brewery and drank some free beer, didn't you? Uh, We did. We did it without you, and I think that's wise. Um, (laughs) uh, But we went to see uh, a a place called the Small Beer Company. And uh, Small Beer is named the company, but Small Beer is actually a a concept that's been around for a long time, which is the idea of a beer that's sort of below 2.8%. And this isn't like a watered-down beer. It's a beer that's brewed specifically at that kind of ABV and tastes as good as a normal beer, but it's fallen out of fashion. And um, and Felix and James, who set the small beer company, are trying to bring it back. And we thought that was quite interesting. We've actually drunk the small beer, and it's jolly nice. Um, it does taste like bright, real proper beer. So, yes, we went off to the small beer company. Okay, okay. Well, uh, we'll head to that interview now. Excitingly, uh, as a surprise to you, I've ordered some of the small beer. So uh, I'm going to go and get it now, and uh, I shall drink along while I listen to this interview, and I shall tell you what I think afterwards. So here's Mark and Ed at the small beer company. So this is, uh, we're very excited. This is our first... Outside broadcast. Well, outside broadcast. We haven't brought John with us because we're in a brewery and we always think that would be dangerous. Because, uh, as we know, getting John not to drink is like getting North Korea to let go of its nuclear ambitions. So we are here with... Well, maybe you can introduce yourself. Who are you, sir? Mark, Ed, it's great to have you here. My name is Felix James and I'm co-founder of Small Beer Brewery. So talk to us about where we are and why it's here. So we are in, and I'm not afraid to say that this is the world's first small beer brewery. So the reason that this is relevant again is that people are becoming a little bit cognizant of the idea that actually beer isn't all macho anymore. We don't have to drink 16 pints of 5% beer. Nobody ever did. You know, it's, it's a complete John, fallacy. <laughs> and so, all of a sudden, the idea of sort of gender-specific drinks and this sort of complete misunderstanding of what premium means in that premium should be higher in alcohol or tasting of something <clears throat> slightly more than nothing is dead. You know, we've now gone through this kind of craft beer phase and we've understood that provenance and, and sort of craft and artisan skill 
uh, a meaningful. Hang on, now, hang on, Mark, Mark, hang, Mark, on. Mark, hang on, Mark, hang on. It's very beer. important, Isaiah. Now, now, when you say craft beer, yeah. what I hear is the words amateur beer. This is yeah. Sebastian and Johan, who hated their job at KPMG, have decided to like beer. Have bought a book on brewing. They've got some investment from Uncle Horatio. They bought a still. And they've made a really, really awful shit beer called Gamma Puke that tastes like the bottom of a cereal packet. And now they think they're brewers. It's not craft. It's amateur. It's fucking... Stop it. Go back to your corporate job and stop inflicting your shit, artisanal, piss-tasting wank onto my palate. Now, one of the reasons I am I like uh, your company, Felix, the reason we're here, because I, I, I drink your beer, is that you are a professional. Because you? you've worked, you you actually are a prof- you've worked at some proper big brewers. You... I I have um, I have been brewing beer for fifteen years. Uh, I worked at Budweiser and at Fuller's, and I've got a bit of that experience behind me. And I also truly believe when I speak to brewers, they don't want to be drinking ridiculously, you know, overhopped beers that are uh, that are so full of flavour that you're you're kind of ripping the back of your throat out. Mm. The the idea is that we make classic beer styles just below 2.8%. And we don't consider ourselves a craft brewery. My point was that we've learned a little bit from the craft brewing movement. We can see another phase ahead of us. And we hopefully are at the forefront of that wave. We don't think all beer should be small beer, but we think that you should be able to walk into a pub and have the opportunity to drink small beer when the time isn't quite right for you to be drinking two pints of five percent beer because you've got to get back to work that, that afternoon you've got to get up the following morning and see the boss or maybe you are the boss um <laughs> you've got to be uh, you've got to look after the kids you've got to have a cohesive conversation whatever it may be but drinking your beer as we are dear listener at this moment um your beer doesn't taste any different mm. to a full three four five percent beer it has all it has that same flavor so so, because one of the things that strikes me at the moment, I've seen, you know, throughout my adult life, is it just seems year on year they're trying to sell you more alcohol. You know, wine glasses have gone up, you know, from 125 to a third of a bottle. <coughs> the strength yeah. of wine the strength is 14 and a half percent. You know, what's creating this alcoholic inflation? Why, why, why are people trying to get us so pissed so quickly? Certainly from a brewing perspective, it's easy to make really flavourful beer and other alcoholic drinks at a higher ABV. It's absolutely the case when I found your beer, which I found in my local delicatessen, and I was like, oh, this is, this is great. It tastes like beer, and, I don't, and I've got two kids, and I can, you know, it feels like a real, it feels like a relax all of a sudden. It's like, oh, I can actually drink a bunch of this mm. and, yeah. you know, have a slight buzz, taste the same as normal beer, or, you know, as good as... And I, I don't wake up the next morning <coughs> having to deal with, you know, my children with a bloody hangover. Well, that's it. And, and it is a case of, you know, we want you to experience that wonderful sort of one or two pint feeling where you've just kind of rounded the edge off, but you haven't completely... Oh, my God. <laughs> I know what's going to happen now. An explosion in quality pool playing throughout the land. Because it's about two pints, <laughs> it's isn't it? It's about two pints where suddenly you get good for like, for like a moment, isn't it? It's about, and then by the time your third pint's gone, you're just you're dreadful. But maybe, it's it. all, but maybe also conversation-wise. I mean, I think, you know, the small beer conversational plateau that you reach that peak point of the evening where everyone is as funny as they possibly can be 
Uh, but, they but they actually are. So if someone sober was sat at the table, they'd still find you funny. Before, before we started recording this, you've made this really great analogy, which I'd like to come back to, about you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Can it? it doesn't have to be all yeah. vegan. You know, give, give us that analogy again. So the idea of small beer is really... It's bigger than just the fact that we brew beer below 2.8%. Right? That, that's what we do. But why do we do it? The, the real reason why we make small beer is to act as that middle ground. It's a, we live in this world now where things have completely gone out of balance. You've got the really, really intense, you know, in terms of politics, you've got this intense political um, sort of um, uh, really quite sort of righteous um, populist movement. And then on the other side, you've got all these, these sort of very, very far left you know, everything swung completely the other way. In terms of, if you look at diets, you've got these uh, these sort of vegan diets that are completely, you know, your only plant-based diets. And, and then on the other hand, you've got people who are only eating beef drippings and, 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 and bones and fat. And, you know, it's, it's completely nuts. You know, everything oh, is swinging one way or the other. In a world that is so divided and where people find themselves either incredibly rich, incredibly poor, you know, that we're tearing the world apart, um, the, you know, we're tearing our planet apart, literally. We've got to have this middle ground. And it's this, um, I was actually speaking to someone the other day that was talking about um, how it related with them as a Buddhist. Because it is this, this path through all the, the craziness that, that, that sort of amounts to modern daily life. It's this very, very clear central vision. I love this the idea that beer can be the thing that brings us back together. Because in a way, we just say, well, you're not just, you've got that little edge rounded off. You are more open to speaking to other people who are different to you. That's the great thing about going to a pub and having a few beers, you relax a bit. And actually, if that is the underpinning philosophy of why you set up the company, that's, that's more beautiful than I imagined, actually. I thought it was just about beer, but actually, you're, you're trying to bring us all back to love. That's the other thing to say about your business, isn't it? Because you, you are aiming to be like the most sustainable beer brewer there is like you use so much less water than than normal we've we have we've broken records we are uh, so in order to to make a pint of beer the sort of industry standard has always been that you use between eight and ten pints of water and that's certainly not that's no longer an absolute standard standard because there are breweries who have used less who've used six maybe even four potentially even three there are some real, you know, Carlsberg have been putting a hell of a lot of work into, uh, into trying to reduce that. We've actually gone one further. We've, so in order to make one pint of beer, uh, we use one and a half pints of water. Wow. And we're reducing that further, you know, year on year. We're, we're continuously looking. Do you ever think you'll get to below one pint of water? <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea of, of the beer stock cube, which, which is, is not one for today. Um, how can small beer help save Britain's pubs? That's a great question. Um, I, I actually think that there is this, um, there is a, a question of that sort of local uh, element coming back in. Um, and in fact, it was, the, it was small beer that was, was transported to pubs back in the 1800s by the, the youngsters of the household. Uh, so if you wanted to have your... <laughs> indentured child labour <laughs> taking, pub taking beer, beer, beer to adults is to the, the way pub, to... Yes. Taking beer to the pub. Yeah. There's a nice historical link between local small beer 
um, and, and pubs. But I see small beer doing more than just, than just reignited, reigniting pub life. I think that it can do more for the NHS. We have a problem with alcohol mm. as a nation. Yeah. I think the answer to that is not to say, let's not drink any alcohol, because that just makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. The answer to that is say, let's moderate a little bit. Yeah. Now, how, you know, how do we get into that moderation? Well, I, I personally think that just setting the balance as the brewery means that as the drinker, you don't have to. And we've always had this, this issue with alcohol as humans. You drink a little bit of alcohol, and all it makes you want to do is drink more alcohol. And we're very, very bad at deciding where that limit lies. We don't suddenly get to two and a half pints and then go, well, I'm a two and a half pint person, so I'm going home. Mm -hmm. um, you're always thinking, oh, if only I hadn't had that last drink. If instead you're drinking a beer which is set at 2%, you're drinking a beer which has effectively been made for you as a person. So how is it different then? I mean, just to play slight devil's advocate. Yeah. So when I worked in Australia, uh, as a marine biologist 25 years ago, you know, I remember drinking sort of Castle Main 4X Light, yeah. which was exactly the Australian equivalent of what you might call a session beer. It was about 2%. And the idea was, you know, you could be out on the beach with, you know, your mates surfing and basically drinking beer all day. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking in the States there, Bud Light, you know. What, what, if, I'm a, if I'm asking you, what's the difference between a small beer and a light beer? The difference, the difference is that... Um, Castle Main Light wouldn't exist without Castle Main. So right. Castle Main Light only works because you understand Castle Main and you want the small beer feeling. Unfortunately, Castle Main Light is never going to taste as good as Castle Main. And a lot of breweries have done this, where effectively they're making a 4 or 5% beer and then watering it down to a 2% beer, adding literally in, in the industry it's called de-aerated liquor, um, but in reality it's just fizzy water. They water them down with fizzy water, effectively. Felix, thank you very much. Um, uh, and we have to say, we're, we're not here because anybody's paying us. We've come here because we see small beer as one of those systems change things, solving a problem for Excellent. drinkers and the world. Well, look, if you want to make this a bigger thing, if you believe in the small beer concept, then you can pick some up from our website online. You can get it from Mercado, you can get it from Waitrose, and you get it at your local pub. So there we go. Uh, before we get to the, the meat and drink of what you, you spoke about, what did you drink and how much of it did you get for free? Well, I, I drank their session pale, which I like, and I got uh, a pint of it for free. And I was late, so I only had a half a pint. Oh, I feel so much better about not being there. I thought I'd missed like an epic session. Yeah, well, the thing is, I think if you'd been there, it might have turned into an epic session, but, you know, you were busy doing some celebrity thing like filming your sitcom or something like that. Um, so I have a can of, here we go, small beer company Session Pale, so that I feel like I'm with you in spirit. Um, I'm going to have a little swig on it now. It's bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. It's absolutely delicious. And it has, Mark, I know you're a fan of uh, the same beer as I am, St. Austell Tribute. It has that slightly floral note to it. Um, mm. Absolutely delicious. And it's vegan, so I can bang that drum. So I never feel like the two of you 
are so similar and, and in your goals for society and how interesting you are. And yet every now and again, the difference between you comes out and you were talking about how this beer has the potential to, Mark, in your words, uh, bring about some of the best and most consistent pool and darts playing we've seen in this country. And then, Ed, you said, and it was so sweet, or perhaps conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was such a sweet moment where Mark was all about the pub games and you said, well, actually... Perhaps we'll just talk more honestly, and and it, and and the dagger through my heart, the fear I had. Remember the conversations you have, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. That that's the only thing that put me off the beer, the thought that oh god, I'm gonna remember everything I said. You know, like when the smoking ban ended and you could smell pubs. It might be like that, but where I get home from a night in the pub and remember everything I've said, and I'm just struck by the tedium of what I've forced people to sit through. That's that's interesting for a man who's trying to promote a podcast at the moment. Absolutely. A heavily edited podcast where I have two people who know more than me and a guest every week. <laughs> and yet my name is first in big letters. What a criminal world we live in. I'm hoping series three will be called the Future Noughts brackets in spite of John Richardson. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think there was a general point where we can link those two interviews together, really, because, you know, as we said at the top of the podcast and we say often, you know, that socialization is really important for a long and happy life and social cohesion and pubs are really important for that. But the kind of the escalation and the amount of alcohol people are trying to sell us is you can go somewhere that's supposed to be good for social fabric, but end up with quite a lot of, you know, bad and heavy drinking. So if you can create a beer that allows you to go there and, you know, as, as I was really struck by what Felix said, like, and I find this, like, you know, the problem with alcohol is you drink some and it makes you want to drink some more. So if you've got an alcohol that's actually brewed, as he said, for the human being in that it's a level of alcohol that you still want to drink some more, but you're not destroying your your liver or your health while you're doing it, then that also leads on to a healthier society. So it's like, it's like it feels to me like a win-win-win, like really tasty beer that we all used to drink apparently when, you know, back, back in the day, then it's kind of come out of favour. We're in community-owned pubs where we can have a laugh and uh, and talk and play darts and, and pool to high standard um, without putting a massive burden on an NHS. What's not to like? And it strikes me that there's also a, a an extent to which, you know, as we say every week, all our podcasts link together. And as you talk about one topic, you realise that one cannot improve without the others improving. And I think there's a similar thing with pubs and this strength of beer that there's a sort of uh, psychological and mental well-being element that we haven't really addressed as to why culturally we go out and get so heavily drunk. And there is a sense of escaping what we see as a bleak future and the idea of wanting to be slightly less conscious of things than we were. And I think that is linked to a lack of hope. And broadly, if we if we deal with some of the other things, you would go to the pub more openly to be with your friends and to share experiences then at the moment there is this sense of right this is our one night to actually get off our heads because everything is so bleak and i think you know that is something that culturally needs to change before we can embrace the idea of going and drinking a week of beer and remembering the conversations we had i think you're right can we discuss this over some beers yes absolutely i've got some uh, knockoff russian stuff 48 percent. i'll bring it around your house <laughs> i think there's something interesting you're saying there though john because i th- yeah, I wonder whether also pubs act as a, as a break on really problematic drinking and perhaps actually the real drowning of the sorrows that we're, you're alluding to is the stuff that goes on with people drinking at home alone and, yes. and drinking the, the cheap booze from the supermarket. And, and actually there's something about the sort of social contract that goes on in pubs and true people do probably overindulge, but there, we are also there to try and keep each other vaguely on the straight and narrow. It's not about total annihilation. Uh, and the 
real problem drinkers are doing it in private. Yes, aren't they, John? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, actually, I mean, talking about all things linked together, um, actually, Ed, do you want to talk about your new best friend, Brian Eno, and the locks in again and what you're doing there, which I think ties in what Mark was saying and also tells us a little bit about what's happening in a future exciting episode of the podcast. Exactly. So I will weave the threads seamlessly together. Um, so I mentioned that my first exploits in underage drinking were at the Locks Inn, uh, which actually came up for sale recently. Uh, the the freeholder put the place on the market and there was a sort of slightly mad panic because we were rather worried that it might be get bought up by a property developer. Uh, and as Mark said, uh, end up uh, being converted into a very nice residence by the river and 300 years of pub history would go literally down the river and I was having a conversation with a mate of mine in the garden and he said well maybe we should buy it uh, and then we discovered that actually uh, a great local activist a guy called Graham Elliott was actually instigating uh, a save the locks campaign um, and had done a crowdfund and managed to raise somewhere between four and five hundred thousand quid in the space of three weeks uh, from various people's different commitments um, to, to enable us to buy the pub before it went to auction. So we did a preemptive bid uh, and we are now doing a full uh, community share issue uh, and we are trying to get 500 owners. Uh, so it's one pub, 500 careful owners uh, and to turn it into one of the sort of greenest, fairest, most democratic pubs in, in the country. And so if you go to savethelocks.com, uh, you can come and join us uh, by buying a share uh, in this pub. Uh, and so when we found out that the pub was coming up for auction, um, a friend of mine, Toby, and I were kicking around ideas about who we could get to, with a bit of public profile to help support the community buyout. Uh, and I said to him, well, what about Brian Eno? He lives just up the road. Uh, and then sure enough, I was walking home after this beer. And who did I bump into in the, in the lane, uh, the country lane? Uh, but Brian Eno himself. Uh, and so I mentioned it to him. Uh, and he came on board and acted as our spokesperson for a couple of the, the TV shots that we did uh, in regard to raising awareness of this community buyout. And we are now hopefully going to be closing and, and bringing this pub back for the next 300 years. Uh, and so it's a fantastic thing. And it also leads us onto the fact that Brian Eno will be joining us on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks' time to talk about the more radical, uh, game-changing climate solutions that are happening out there. So we're very much looking forward to that too. Yes, we've got Brian coming on with James Thornton, who is the CEO and founder of Client Earth, perhaps the most important organisation in the world. Uh, so there you go. And next week, we have uh, two fantastic guests as well as we bring you the future of protest. So very exciting uh, things coming up over the next few weeks. We round off this week, as we do every week, with Pointless Futures. And since we're talking about alcohol, are there any uh, are any ways in which people are trying to steer us to a, a more pointless future where drinking is concerned? Well, the thing is, I th what we found is when it comes to pointless futures around drinking, there's a lot because it seems to me there's a lot of products about drinking that are completely pointless but are the sort of thing you might buy when you are drunk uh, so we're going to do a few of them uh so there's the woff or le woff it's a, a le woff yeah uh, which apparently will turn whatever you're drinking into a cloud you can inhale it seems to take away the point really of of it being a drink you don't go to the pub for I'll have a, I'll have a cloud, do you? You go, I'll have a drink. Yeah, well, it's just like not having your drink. Even on their own website, they say, turn your drink into a cloud and sip low-calorie air. I mean, who who says, do you know what I fancy tonight? A few deep breaths. 
Do you fancy a good golf? <laughs> Everything we've been talking about, the whole point about a pub is to be socialized and to chat while you're drinking, all that kind of stuff. So that you just walk into a place, inhale a bit of booze and walk out feeling merry just seems like a, it's, it is a pointless future. Who thinks of this stuff? It's marketing over content. It's completely ridiculous. And you people need to go to the locks in and stay there for 350 years until you've learned your fucking lesson. <laughs> uh, what else have we got? Uh, the most yeah. disgusting thing I've ever seen. One of you has been able to find the link to it. The, the flip-flop bottle opener. Yeah. Which I've seen in action on holidays. And it just the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Yeah, the idea that you think, oh, what I'm going to put onto the bottle I'm about to stick into my mouth is the dirty flip-flop I've been wearing all day. It's second only to the pair of underpants that you can filter your drinks through. I mean, absolutely rank. That's not a real thing, is it, John? I think is that just something you've done? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but since you believed it, that means there's a market for it. Well, there is. There is. There was also there was also the Intoxic case, which was the uh, iPhone case with the built-in bottle opener for obviously the thirsty executive. So you can crack open your iPhone in order to crack open a bottle of beer on the train on the way home. Yeah, and also I saw the anti-beer burglar alarm, which is like if you've got a pint of beer on the on the bar and you say you need to nip off somewhere like to go to the loo or something, you can put this little thing on it, which if somebody moves your beer, it will send out an alarm. I mean, the thing is, that means you're literally going to a pub where you expect people to steer your beer, which means you're probably not welcome in that pub. You're the sort of person that, who's a horrible individual anyway. It's like it's 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 a it's a product for somebody who shouldn't be in the pub in the first place because they're either too stupid, too unpopular, or too horrible. <laughs> yeah, my favourite one was the electric amphibious vehicle, which was like a sort of uh, remote control car. Uh, that you stick your beers on top of and it's supposed to be obviously to go over land or through water in order to deliver uh, the cold beverages to their target um, but this, it's only got one review uh, on the website uh, which is found and it, the review just says vehicle is smaller than pictured will not carry beverages <laughs> in water when in water only sputters along um, and the water cannon it's got a built-in water cannon um, also it doesn't work not happy with it at all and it's like, you did buy it, you idiot. <laughs> um, well, we've discussed uh, we've discussed Mark's film viewing history. We've discussed the future of Britain's pool players. And we've discussed pubs and alcohol. Next week, as I say, uh, we will be back to discuss the future of protest. Keep your comments coming in. We uh, love to hear it through the Twitter feed and through the email. And the details of how you can reach us are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, John. And I uh, hope to see you for a drink soon. Please, God. <laughs> <laughs> and a special news now for all our listeners. I'm delighted to reveal this podcast, we will not be ending with one of Ed's poems. Don't take it away. Ha, 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 ha.